crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and you hear the lamentation of the women. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And today we're here to honor Conan the Barbarian from 1982. Yeah, and boy are we going to honor it. We just finished watching this film and uh, I've got nothing but good things to say about it and I can't wait to say them all. This is the uh, film directed by John Milius, um, written by John Milius and Oliver Stone. Kind of an odd combination. Uh, the film has obviously had quite a legacy. Um, it, I mean, it kind of launched Arnold. Not not only did it watch launch Arnold, but you know, watching it again just now, you can really see the influences this movie's had right. uh, across across Hollywood, especially across the sword and sorcery. Army of uh, Darkness. What about? There's definitely some Army of Darkness <laughs> moments in this. Army of Darkness, some Lord of the Rings, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the whole uh, sword and sorcery thing of the 1980s. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it's interesting you say sword and sorcery because the year this movie came out in '82, uh, at the box office, um, it was sandwiched in between two other uh, sword and sorcery movies. At the uh, for the final year end tallies, the number one movie of '82 was E.T. of course, um, for with like 350 million dollars. But uh, Conan landed at number 17, making 39.6, um, 100 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, right in front of it was Dark Crystal. Making forty million, and right behind it was Sword and the Sorcerer, making about five hundred thousand less. Really? So it was just a very interesting placement. <clears throat> I don't actually remember anything about Sword and the Sorcerer. However, uh, no, you can tell of those three which two. The two front runners were the two that <laughs> stuck around. That five hundred thousand dollars made a big difference to Sword and the Sorcerer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And everyone's always talking about how great the Dark Crystal was, but uh, right, you know, folks, go and watch that again as an adult. It's. Uh, it doesn't hold up, and it doesn't make sense. I actually think it's a decent movie. Eh. I, I'll take it over Labyrinth any day of the week. Yeah, well, fair enough. You yeah. can only handle so much dancing David Bowie. Well, yeah, and giant cod pieces. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a movie that was directed by John Milius, who is a Hollywood maverick. <laughs> maverick. Kind of a whack job. <laughs> Maverick's one word. Um, the, the guy is, he's hes essentially the, the Hollywood equivalent of a, of a freeman on the land. He... Um, you can just picture him writing screenplays and manifestos in a trailer park somewhere. Uh, try do anything he can to, to, you know, get forward his Tea Party esque uh, <laughs> <laughs> individualist uh, survivalist politics. Yeah, and he's in real life. He's kind of a, a surfer, adrenaline junkie type. Uh, he was somewhat of the basis for Walter Subcheck in The Big Lebowski, the John Goodman character. <laughs> and uh, he was actually, this is one of my most interesting things about John Milius is, he was an uncredited writer on the uh, Indianapolis speech for Jaws. The, f- the final version that's in the movie was sort of done by three or four different writers, but John Milius did have a crack at it. So some of his, his input did make it in. I like to think that that's basically his just day-to-day account of his past. Well, what's the Indianapolis speech? The famous refer- speech where Quint talks about being on the USS Indianapolis and having it go into the sea. And having the sharks, you know, kill him and his... Or, well, not kill him, but kill all his friends. And that was written by John Milius. Partly, yeah. 
He, <laughs> a lot of people rewrote it. Robert Shaw wrote it. Um, John Milius took a crack at it. Carl Gottlieb. But the the point is, like, one of the most famous monologues in movie history that you don't remember um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, John Millies did have a hand in it. But well, he, also, he also wrote Apocalypse if it, Now. If this was a shark movie podcast, I'd uh, <laughs> have it ready to go. That's the next podcast. Um, but he also, I mean, he's just a really talented guy. Um, he was one of the uh, writers of the Dirty Harry uh, films early on. He did the first Dirty mm. Harry uncredited, and he wrote Magnum Force, which is one of the most fascist movies ever uh, created. Yeah, there's also Red Dawn. Yeah, another movie he wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, also incredibly um, right-wing. Yeah. But it's kind of a bummer that he doesn't really have any sort of presence nowadays. He kind of really faded away at I, a certain point. I kind of get the impression that he alienated a lot of people. I think um, so, because his last uh, directorial credit is a movie called Rough Riders, which was a TV movie in 97. Hmm. He only made eight theatrical films. Well, maybe he's sculpting or something like that now. Well, there was a documentary called Milius. It's apparently very good. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Anyways, I mean, you take a guy like John Milius and you... Uh, hook him up with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dino De Laurentiis. And another another whack job in Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone. And was, yeah, and Oliver Stone was the uh, the co-writer of the film. And he they also toyed at, a, at one point of having Oliver Stone direct it, or co-directed, I should say, with Joe Alves, who designed the shark in Jaws and was the director of Jaws 3, you know, the 3D one. Yeah, you know, you take all these guys and you mix them into a cauldron with some human body parts and right. out, out comes a movie like Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, and this really is a... There was one word that kept springing to my mind watching this movie, and that's pure. This is a pure film. This is a pure expression of all the crazy influences and bizarro uh, psychology that these guys brought to it. And it just is this thing that is... I mean, I, 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 we'll get into what we, we think about the movie maybe in, in depth more, but... um. This is a perfect film for what it is. What does that mean? Well, they, <laughs> what they what this these guys set out to accomplish, they accomplished. Yeah, I I mean, uh, watching the movie, you know, there's really, uh, I mean, it's a great movie. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you watch the film. Uh, it had been a little while since I'd seen it. I'd seen it a bunch of times, and I've always enjoyed it. And uh, it's it's awesome. It's it's. Such a such a manly fist pumping, sword slashing, yes. blood splattered movie, uh, and you know a lot the of amount the- of testosterone going on in this <laughs> in every frame of this movie is just <laughs> that's incredible. right incredible. You know, and a lot of movies. I mean, this is 1982. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of movies from this era just really don't hold up, and this movie still is uh, the blade is as sharp now as it was then. <laughs> Nice. You know what movie this reminded me of, actually? Uh, and I don't know how flattering a comparison people will find this or you. Is 300. In its ability to take, uh, you know, this epic tale and really hone it down into archetypes and myth. And there's just a simplicity to its images that just stick with you. Like, there are countless frames in this film that are just absolutely beautiful. Like, a perfect rendering of just this grand landscape. And this, and adding a lot of scale where, frankly, scale didn't exist. Yeah, you know, I uh, <laughs> there's a lot of scenes of people running across landscaping. I right. got, got a lot of. Uh, I thought a lot about, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, the more recent turn back towards uh, 
sword and sorcery kind of movies and you know lord of the rings and that kind of thing where right they, they do a lot of that a lot of a lot of running through landscapes yeah uh, you know a lot of that and also just you know a lot of close-ups of swords uh, <laughs> buckles being tightened uh fur capes and that sort of thing all all clothing what is really uh a pretty a pretty great story but it's a very simple story and just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not good like a, a lot of the time nowadays i find when you get to a big movie hollywood movie it's bloated as all hell because there's this weird uh, mindset now where if you're going to make a, a blockbuster or whatever it has to be complicated you know there has to be constant plot mechanics going on this is a movie that hones its story right down to the essence and just tells it incredibly well like it, it's a very operatic film and i think it's really interesting that it came out one year after Excalibur, which achieves a similar sort of grandeur, and I actually prefer this one to Excalibur. Well, I mean, Conan's got pretty good, pretty good pedigree in terms of story. Uh, you know, yeah. coming out of Robert E. Howard from the '30s, who was a, a really interesting guy. Uh, wrote, uh, in addition to Schwarzenegger, I'll, I'll tip my hand here. I'm also a big Conan fan in general, right? Um, and so, yeah, this is really a perfect storm for you. Yeah, it really, is. you were in the bag for this. It one, really no is. So, yeah. so, uh, so Robert this is like in your DNA. It, it truly is. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't stress enough yeah. how much I uh, enjoy. You know, really, you combine Arnold and Conan, and it's uh, oh, beauty. Beauty occurs. But you, um, you know, it started with Robert E. Howard in the 1930s, I believe. He was a Pulp Fiction writer, uh, writing, you know, the episodic, weird tales uh, kind of stories for, you know, 25 cents a gander right. sort of thing. Um, interesting guy himself had uh, also had weird ideas uh, about uh, weird political ideas, but apparently was a very competent bodybuilder himself. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, Interesting. Wrote other more forgettable stories, Call the Conqueror. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying Call the Conqueror was forgettable? Uh, that did inspire that great Kevin Sorbo film. Sorry, Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, you know, and <laughs> that then, is one of the shittiest movies I've ever seen. It's full on. It's not. It's not great. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a Kevin Sorbo fan, but uh, yeah, no so, one's a Kevin Sorbo fan. I'm not a no Kevin not. Sorbo fan. I dig it back. Um, You're like I'm a big fan of God's Not Dead. <laughs> but you know, and obviously a bunch of writers uh, since Howard have picked it up. It was yeah. um, picked up uh, by Al Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter most. Notably, I think in the seventies they did a lot of the uh, the paperback fiction. Uh, it was also uh, Roy Thomas, who for a while was the I think the head story writer or principal editor or something like that of Marvel. He right. he started the Savage sort of Conan books, which uh, the art and the covers in that gave a lot of uh, a lot of the imagery that you see in Sword and Sorcery movies and other fiction generally and then and then throughout the throughout the times as well it's been uh published in paperback uh, if you if you ever read the the wheel of time or something like that robert uh what's his name rob not robert howard robert jordan uh, he he had a stint writing conan as well and a bunch of other authors have written it. and uh he's got a long conan's got a long history in he's in one literature. of those characters who will never die no he just he's he's a pretty awesome guy he's pretty straightforward you know a barbarian savage that wins a wins a uh, throne by his own hand, and 
it's I mean it's hard to and then all of the stories in between him being 17 and a king in uh, right. Aquilonia or wherever. Now I'm curious now. Okay, so you've read at least a lot of these stories. I've read a lot of them. Yeah. Now I'm curious. What is your favorite interpretations outside of Howard's? Um, well, I really, I really like the um, Savage Sword of Conan that Roy Thomas wrote. Right. Kind of in the 70s, uh, I think it was really something a lot different uh, at the time uh, from the normal mm-hmm. normal comics. I don't, I don't mind the funny books now and then, but uh, normally I, I steer clear of them. I, I always remember um, reading Silver Surfer comics as a kid, and I would flip through, and they always had the subscription page, you know, at the back of every Marvel comic, mm-hmm. and they would have the prices for how much, you know, each title was. And I remember that I would always see Savage sort of Conan at, like, the most expensive price. Yeah, well, I mean, but you'd always look at it as a kid, you'd be like, wow, that looks clearly like it's the best comic here. It'd always yeah. be some, uh, like, watercolored, photorealistic print of... You know, Conan standing uh, chained to a pillar yeah. with uh, some buxom babe on his arm right. and a snake about to to about to eat them or something like that. It looked it looked awesome, and it turned and then you don't get it. The and it turns out it was awesome. Now the characters in this film, I have kind of a two part question for you. One, um, how accurate were they to their sort of appearances in the novels? And two, were they enduring characters in the novels, or were they or did they just pop up in like one adventure or something? Well, there was definitely, obviously Conan, you know, went all the, the whole way through, but the rest of the cast. I mean, there's definitely they didn't deviate the way some movies do, right? Where they take uh, the the source material and then just demolish, <laughs> like it. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> that that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did a pretty good they did a pretty good job. Um, there's a lot of purists out there, Conan purists that don't like this movie, right? Um, because uh the origin story of conan in this movie which i think works really well for the movie mm-hmm. where he's taken from his village and uh through you know s- physical prowess and strength of will you know rises from slave to gladiator to right. uh free warrior kind of thing mm-hmm. uh you know in in the books he's just a sumerian barbarian whose village is mown down and he leaves when he's 17 or 18 and goes out to seek his fortune in the world interesting now are you a fan of the movie's interpretation of this i am actually i think it's i think it's great i think um you know there's the 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 movie itself doesn't really lose anything um from it and i think it does a good good job of uh of showing the you know the rise to the educated barbarian that Schwarzenegger ends up paying. I'm I'm really just kind of rambling on. I really like talking about Conan. It's 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 really right. uh, really a passion for me. Unfortunately, it's not a Conan podcast. It's, it's an Arnold <laughs> podcast because I'd love. We'll to, have more Conan chapters. Oh, I'd I'd love to talk about this forever. Uh, you know, nor, normally my goal on this is just to to chime in once in a while and make some some quippy witticism <laughs> ridicule my attempts to uh do you know, any sort of uh, yeah, actual so, criticism so, so for the so far for our uh i guess this is technically our second episode but yeah. so far i'm sure there's people falling asleep on buses <laughs> listening to this like what are these guys talking about no no i can guarantee whoever's listened to a conan the barbarian podcast <laughs> wants to hear you talk about conan the barbarian yeah if anyone wants to come over <laughs> we'll drink mead sharpen our broadswords and just wax Prolics about uh, Conan and yeah. uh, Red Sonia and Cull. <laughs> Maybe not so much Cull. Well, you know. But um, <laughs> I want to talk about that intro sequence of this movie. 
which establishes basically the origin story of Conan. And it's played out almost entirely silently, minus, you know, a discussion between uh, Conan and his father. Well, don't, don't forget, I mean, you're, you're jumping right into the intro sequence, but right. before we leave Milius entirely, okay. I, I thought that... Well, I figured he would come in and out, you know, like I, a thread tying this whole tapestry together. I thought that it was <laughs> just a nice Milusian touch for him to open the film with a quote from Frederick Nietzsche, <laughs> which is <Yeah>. really, <laughs> um, I mean, as, as much as it was a, you know, it's a great quote and a very famous quote, yeah. um, I think opening a barbarian movie with a uh, 19th century German philosopher is, uh, right. <laughs> is you might as well just be writing, uh, you know, Writing Milius's manifesto <laughs> quotes, on and this the movie front. was very controversial, uh, largely because of that and its <laughs> yeah. Nietzschean uh, messages. <laughs> yeah. um, but that opening section, uh, the only the only jarring aspect is the kid in lipstick. But other than that, um, <laughs> you know, what if, depends depends on your. Uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> what a like what a brilliant opening to this film. It's like fifteen minutes. It's like its own little silent mini movie. And just how much more impact is there in this sequence, uh, again, almost wordless, versus, say, the, the, the new version with Jason Momoa, which has very similar opening, but a whole lot more talking, a whole lot war- more quote-unquote world-building, a ho- whole lot more exposition. This movie, it's, like, sophisticated. It's to the point. But it just it leaves you with all... It, instead of, like, just filling your ears with messages and, you know, exposition... It just kind of lets it all wash over you in visual imagery. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Oh, oh that opening scene is amazing. It starts yeah. with, I mean, it starts with, you know, you're just like, wow, this guy's blacksmithing a sweet sword. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't even have water. He just Never like, trust women. Only trust your sword. <laughs> yeah, never trust women, beasts, <laughs> And this movie children, seems like a movie policemen. made by people that don't trust women. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I've got some stuff to say about uh, Milius's take on on women. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is. We'll we'll get into it. Yeah. But um, just like plunging the plunging the you know the the sword into the snowbank. Yeah. Uh, and you know normally stuff like that's is pretty boring. Right. Um, I think it's really helped along, and uh, look, we have more to say about this as well. But the score in this movie is amazing. Right. Uh, the music is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I agree. You know, normally I don't really go for movie soundtracks. I think, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but uh, you know, this this movie is really driven by the soundtrack. And it's interesting because Milius originally wanted a score that would be sort of inspired by uh, Carmina Burana. Who? Uh, Carmina Burana. <laughs> you gotta stop dropping references that I don't know. Which is the famous <laughs> opera. And I always and I always figure, here's what I always figure, Cameron, that before we do these, you go on and you look up things, and then you quote them like I'm supposed to know them, but you didn't know them before I you looked. I did know this one, because <laughs> I have this uh, this music on my uh, iPod. <laughs> it also is the used as the main score for Excalibur, which is why it was ah, not used in, in Conan. Okay. And I also tell you the the band Mudvayne comes out to this song when they are on, back in the days when they were a band. That's right. Oh, we're getting yeah. we're, we're getting your musical taste. That's right, metal of man. Opera and opera and, uh, and shitty nineties metal. <laughs> new man, new metal. <laughs> yeah, two thousands man. Get it right. Um, but just like you know, the the sense of like like beauty of this whole opener is just stunning to me, and just sucks you right into the movie. And, you know, ends with that perfect moment of him on the wheel, 
outlasting all the other kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, this that movie... kind of brings it to the to its climax, and then we, you know, the movie starts. Yeah, I mean, this movie's really about. I mean, the whole movie is really summed up in in the first five minutes or so, where you you get. Uh, you know, an on-the-nose Nietzsche quote. Boy, I guess this is about a guy with a lot of will. Right. Um, and then you get uh, The Secret of Steel. Right. Where, you know, uh, it's about steel weapons, willpower, and revenge. Right. And uh, everything else is just window dressing. Sure. But And that the, the whole thing, I mean, and that's where it deviates from the Howard and the... Uh, other sources of Conan, the origin story, but um, but I think that wheel scene is <laughs> it's pretty sweet. It's iconic. <laughs> there's like two to me big iconic shots in this movie. Uh, I mean, there's there's I'm sure more, but the two that really had been ingrained in me since the first time I saw the movie back, you know, a decade or so ago, is the shot of him on the wheel, and the second is him in the throne at the end. Yeah, those I mean, those are two two great ones, and I mean. You know, and the cinematography and the filming and just the, the the pacing of this film is great. I mean, that whole initial battle with like horses crashing through walls. Yeah. Um, if this if this movie was done today, I guess it has been. Um, right. <laughs> it would be computer graphics. Um, everything yeah. would be, you know, fast paced, cartoonish, cartoonish. And here. Uh, you get the impression there was a lot of animal handlers on the set. There was a lot of stuntmen on the set. Some of these animals probably weren't treated that well. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> that poor camel that he punched in the face. <laughs> now, was that shot um, like a, an homage to um, Blazing Saddles? <laughs> I don't know. It sure feels like it. And also, I thought just, uh, you know, the way they introduced and then killed off Conan's Conan's parents. So, yeah. so it, it set the tone for the movie being really savage as well where yeah you know unlike um who was it it was uh what's his name hellboy ron perlman that played mm-hmm. the dad in the new one right yeah um you know where he get like liquid metal poured into his yeah, head or he, had something? A, he had a very dramatic dramatic death yeah um and in this movie he you know he he kind of said some piece about the secret of steel and only trust your sword yeah, and then he got, like, chewed up by dogs. Worst dad. Yeah, and then <laughs> he died very savagely. Yeah. Um, the mom is the one that gets the um, the big, like, you know, hero death. Yeah. And that the death scene was actually far more graphic. They ended up editing it down. So, let's get into the character of Conan. Um, how did you feel the translation was Arnold Schwarzenegger to the character of Conan? Uh, you know, again, there's... This is early in his career. This is, you know, this they, is one they of his... Picked, they picked him right off Pumping Iron. Yeah. It just took many years to get this movie going. They had the movie kind of uh, wanting to do it in, like, 75. They met with Arnold in 77, and then it wasn't until 82, after going through a few directors like Ridley Scott, that they finally wound up with the team they had and got it going. Well, this was his first really big movie. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, this is really the, the movie that... Are you implying Hercules Goes to New York isn't a big movie? We're going to watch Hercules Goes to New York. Have you ever seen it? Because I never have. I've seen it. Okay. Um, And I should have, in our last episode, I should have said, I'm actually looking forward to revisiting Hercules Goes to New York. I'm interested in seeing it. Um, You know, I thought it was, uh, I don't know, you you watch the movie, and especially if you're familiar at all with Conan, uh, the Conan source material, you kind of think, you know, uh, who else could they have gotten? Uh, Right. 
in, in a lot of ways, uh, Schwarzenegger's portrayal of Conan has defined uh, Conan and yeah. defined the, the appearance of Conan. They've never been able to move past it. I mean, so much so that now they're talking about do it, bringing him back to do The Legend of Conan, yeah. which would be sort of, they say, like the uh, the Unforgiven for this character. Like, they've tried to move past, and people just won't accept any substitutes. Wasn't there a TV series, too, of Conan? There was. There was a couple. There Did it last long? Um, the, no, the, the live-action one only lasted uh, a season, but there was actually yeah. also an animated, an, an, one? An animated yeah. series, which, um, if you were ever a fan of the kind of, um, the less kitty kind of shows, I mean, it was still a kid's Right. Stupid kids cartoon. Right. But it was more along the lines of uh, like Batman the Animated Series or Gargoyles okay. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it was actually, you know, I remember it very, very affectionately as a kid. I don't think I ever saw it, which kind of surprises me. Yeah. Cause we would obviously have been watching very much the same stuff at that point in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, did you, uh, I remember watching the Rambo animated series? But I don't remember Conan one. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't remember Rambo the animated series. Really? I, I can't believe that they uh, <laughs> successfully made that into a cartoon. Yes, they did. Yes, wow. they did. <laughs> it was a magical time in the eighties, and they would just exploit the, <laughs> any property for children. <laughs> I do. There was a police academy in the animated series. That's right. There was. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't last long. No, I feel like they, you know, at that point they'd said all they had left to say with Police Academy. (laughs) I mean, Mission to Moscow hadn't come out yet, I guess, but I feel that franchise had pretty much wrapped up with uh, City Under Siege. Yeah, you know, really. Or Police Academy. (laughs) I did a a watch of all of those movies a while back. and uh, How was that? It wasn't that pleasant. Uh, You know, like, I like the first one. Um... Um, I think maybe the second one had some okay parts, and I think after that it was pretty dire. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll take your word for it. I'm not going to no, sit through. We won't do that for this podcast. No, we, we we'll do we'll start a separate police academy that's, podcast. That's lobotomy again. <laughs> um, so sorry. What was the original question? I, I think we should warn our our listeners, our our loyal listeners who've been here for one episode now. Um, that uh, I think that the, <laughs> I get the impression this is going to be a, a, a theme that this may be a very tangential kind of. That's what program. it's all about, you know. <laughs> we're we're following the flow, but we will hit all the important stops along the way. That that's what matters. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I mean, I think um, I think it's in a lot of ways, and there are purists out there. Uh, I remember it, it, there was a lot of dialogue going on uh, back when they were making the new Conan with Jason Momoa. Uh, about how Arnold wasn't really loyal to the source material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but for me, you know, when I'm thinking about Conan the Barbarian, it's really hard to not think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Um, you know. I mean, for many, I mean, he's the one that brought this property into mainstream pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it had always been a cult thing, but mainstream, no, Conan is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. So... Um, something that I find interesting about watching Conan is that in many ways you can tell that, um, Milius was really using, uh, he, like he recognized the weaknesses in Schwarzenegger's, um, acting at this point because he was, he was still very rough. It would be a little while before Arnold would kind of hone his on-screen persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really uses that as a strength. You know, he says very little in the movie. 
um, he's used more as just this icon. Well, I mean, and the... I think I think it really works. Like you know, I know that sounds like a criticism, and I, and I don't think Arnold is a great actor in the part, but he's a great presence. Yeah. Well, I think that was the in, intent. I mean, I know we were talking about the soundtrack. Yeah. Earlier was I think the intent of the because Emilius worked really close. I was and I, I can say this. I'm not just making this up. Uh, I was right. actually reading the the um, the notes of the of the score the other day, um, and apparently they. Milius and Laurentis, De Laurentis and the composer, I forget his name, um, worked together and what they wanted was basically um, uh, an operatic, uh, oh thanks, Cameron's just handed me the the uh, CD which he, he actually has, has given me, I think he found it at the local uh, Salvation Army, um, Basil Polidorus, uh, so big shout out to Basil. Yeah, hey Baz. Uh, and anyways, and what they wanted was was a movie that was really driven by the score instead of by dialogue, which was yeah. probably a good choice with Arnold. And it's time. interesting because apparently every day on set they would uh, Arnold and John Milius would meet in Arnold's trailer to go over his dialogue. Well, that's what they said. Yeah, and they said that he, <laughs> every line in this movie he rehearsed at least forty to fifty times. Up and at them. <laughs> uh, yeah well and he didn't have that many you know and you th- do you think he speaks more or less in this versus terminator um it's hard to say he doesn't say much in terminator no he doesn't no but it's pretty close pretty close now he's, he's does, he sp- more. does he speak a lot more in destroy in conan the destroyer because i don't remember that movie that well or was um, it about the same uh, you know what? I, Is it I, Wilt Chamberlain doing all the talking? I can't remember. Uh, okay. You know, um, uh, you know. Obviously, the Destroyer is the. It's a PG thirteen movie. It's a yeah. little bit, a uh, little bit less grown up. PG. There was no PG thirteen at that point. Really, it, oh. it would come out of that year with Temple of Doom and um, and Gremlins. Yeah. Speaking of Temple of Doom. Yeah. Uh, yes. Good segue. Yeah. I mean, didn't you find? Uh, you know, you can really see. This movie, we talk about how this movie influenced other movies. I mean, yeah. um, you know, you can see this movie all over Temple of Doom and all other other kinds of uh, adventure movies that came came out of that. Right? Yeah, and a lot of that influence obviously comes from the pulp novels and yeah. all, all these, you know, this artwork that's been done over the years. But also from a 1939 movie called Gunga Din, starring Cary Grant, and it's set in India. And it's sort of about this group of uh, British soldiers who discover the secret cult. And a lot of the imagery is really parceled over into Temple of Doom, almost shot for shot. And I have to believe some of it was wound up in this movie, too. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. know that Spielberg and Milius had at least a, a, a temporary friendship, um, given you know the working together on Jaws. They were pen pals? Who knows? So <laughs> who's to say that they weren't both big uh, Gunga Din fans? Mm-hmm. And that's a movie totally worth watching. Anyone, if you're a fan of Conan, uh, just action adventure movies in general, check out Gunga Din. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, watching this movie, it is impossible to not see the similarities to Temple of Doom. At one point in the movie, you started quoting dialogue from Temple of Doom as Arnold <laughs> and friends were sneaking around rocks well, and whatever. Well, yeah, well, I just thought if you replaced uh, uh, Valeria with... Uh, 
yeah. uh, Willie, yeah. Willie Scott and uh, Schwarzenegger with Indiana and uh, Sumitai, the thief archer guy with a uh, short round, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you, and uh, to extend that, get the guy who played Malaram to replace James Earl Jones as Tulsa Doom. I think that... Uh, there's, there's some serious similarities, too, in the villain type and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The cult leader. I mean, Molaram never turned into a snake, which isn't as... So he's not as badass, I guess, by by virtue of that, but... I don't know. He did rip some guy's hearts out That's pretty That's true. Good. He did. Although James Earl Jones, like, talked like that girl to jumping into... Off a, like a, you know... Which, that was Several a tri- feet. That was really... Uh, I mean, you'd seen... Uh, Tulsa Doom before yeah. in the um, in the the initial siege scene where he was the warlord, right? Um, and that was that was the first scene that you saw him. Really, was he Conan had already uh, infiltrated as a priest and had been um, captured and had the shit kicked out of him by his goons, right? Uh, and uh, that speech, the the power of flesh versus the power of steel, yeah, uh, where he tells the the girl to jump down into the uh, yeah in, into the courtyard uh, was really the first you'd see him. It really established him as uh, being totally out of control. Yeah, uh, he said he based the character on Jim Jones and Charles Manson. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised. Now, here's the question: Had Sean Connery played this role like the producers wanted, would he have based it on those people? <laughs> And had Christopher Lambert played Conan <laughs> instead of Schwarzenegger. Oh my God! Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, who? who Lambert, can... by the way. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Christophe. Christophe. <laughs> um, now, what do you think of Tulsa Doom as a villain? I'm of two minds. On, on one hand, like I really love sort of that subtle menace that uh, James Earl Jones brings to the role. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of the imagery of Tulsa Doom is incredible. You know, the top of those giant stairs and mm-hmm. turning into the snake. But I feel like I don't get to know Tulsa Doom as much as I wish I did. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I want to spend more time with the guy. He seems delightful. Um, <laughs> you know, it's almost like I've kind of been spoiled over the years in that, you know, Going back to the 80s, villains weren't as developed as they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nowadays we would get a whole lot more with Tulsa Doom. And I almost want to know more. Like, not necessarily I don't need a whole origin story, but I would have just liked some, you know, some scenes of him with his cult members and things like that. I, I thought he was great, actually. Um, I actually thought, I mean, all of the all of the characters in this story, I mean, none of them are particularly complicated. They're all no. pretty, pretty archetypal. No, they're not. Um <laughs> But well, I mean, maybe the, that monk guy. But I mean, the story isn't really Conan, uh, Conan versus Tulsa Doom. No. And you know, just imagine if this movie had done what a lot of movies do, where you have they kind of confuse the story, especially when it's a revenge story like this, right? Um, and really, a story about Conan's will against the cult as a whole, yeah, right. Uh, if it they... is set up, though, as a pretty Tulsa versus Conan movie, though, considering you have Tulsa Doom killing his mother at the start. Yeah, but just imagine if they if this movie had ended instead of with the with the weird hypnotism right. scene on the temple, and then uh, Conan hacking 
Darth Vader's Which head is off. amazing. It's really good. Um, but imagine if that had ended instead with a sword fight between James Earl Jones and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't think. It would I don't have... necessarily wanted a longer fight or anything. Just more development of Tulsa Doom, because yeah. he disappears from this movie for like a long time. Yeah, that's because I don't think it's it really. I don't think he really matters as much as yeah. he, he maybe could. I mean, Conan really by its nature is, uh, you know, episodic and serialized. And and that's really, in this movie, I mean, they move from kind of set piece to set piece. Uh, and ultimately, you know, they fight Tulsa Doom and it's, right. it's okay. But the movie's not really about, uh, about uh, Doom. Right. Now... What is the movie about then? Well, like like we like Milius established, it's about the secret <laughs> of steel. It's about uh, Nietzsche quotes and um, you know blood, right? And misogyny and revenge and misogyny. Um, <laughs> as, as misogynistic of a movie this is, it did, Valeria was a pretty pretty strong female character. Yeah, let's get into let's talk about her character for a bit before we come back to the themes mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, Sando Bergman, um, not an actress who really had a rich career before this film or after. Um, I had seen her, I, I, should, I mean, I, had, I know she was um, recommended to producers by uh, Bob Fosse, who uh, directed her in All That Jazz, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, that's right, I'm on Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, and uh, one of my favorite movies is All That Jazz. But um, Sando Bergman is the lead dancer in a number in that uh, put on by Roy Scheider's character. Where it's sort of like this really um, like uh, almost pornographic musical number about flying the friendly skies. Really, I'm gonna have to check that out. Yes, she is nude in the in the dance sequence. So uh, it's well, a, maybe that's why she was cast in this. It's, I think that's part of the reason. Yeah. But they wanted a dancer because they want someone who could do like the really graceful fighting, mm-hmm. uh, like that uh, Valera does here. And uh, she's a great casting choice. She's um. You know that very like tough. Yeah, well, I mean, they. She's made... attractive, but she looks like she could take you down pretty easily. Yeah, it's funny because they tried to um, duplicate that, I guess, in just in the destroyer with Grace Jones. Right. right? Um, <clears throat> another that doesn't tend to work out too well. If the you know, <laughs> the Bond producers found that out a couple years later too. Yeah. Well, um, you know, obviously both uh, uh, very fit. Uh, yeah. Very uh, tough looking. Women, but also very beautiful. Right. Um, but I, th- I think she was a really good uh, casting choice. Um, In many ways, she's the actual, uh, the one carrying sort of the dramatic uh, weight of the scenes. Because, you know, Schwarzenegger at this point is not really up to it yet. Mm-hmm. And you can see that she's the one who's carrying the emotion in these scenes a lot of the time. Yeah, but Schwarzenegger's carrying the sword. And that's oh, what, he's got the steel. And that's what matters in this film. Right. And, you know, I think her character really does come off very well in a movie that generally does not think that highly of women. It's a little weird. And you know what? And the only way I can kind of justify it is, um, I mean, because there's the the two pretty well-known scenes. Um, you know, obviously the one, Conan, what is good in life? Right. Crushing your, you know, I'm not going to do the accent. That's right. Yeah, but, you know, crushing your enemies, seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentations of their women. Right. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. Like that's not what you want on your uh, plenty of fish profile. Um, <laughs> Wait, it isn't. <laughs> oh, guy, can we pause this? I got to change mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, you know, and uh, and and also the one where you know Conan has finally uh, gotten off the wheel and out of the right. gladiator pits, and he's in the cage now, learning about books and also learning about the pleasures of the flesh, which is a very <laughs> creepy scene where another slave girl is kind of pushed into the cave she looks genuinely frightened <laughs> yeah exactly um and uh you know and at first he's kind of like comforting her and you're like oh well, he's not a he's oh like, wait no no he's going for it okay yeah. well that's uncomfortable yeah and i mean the um and then you know there's also the witch woman too yeah you know the, the witch I can live with. The witch would, I just gotta say, slight tangent, um, she reminded me a lot of something from Army of Darkness. Yeah, I have to expect her to be like, I'll swallow your soul! Uh, yeah, I thought you were gonna say she reminded you a lot of <laughs> something from your past. Oh, well, that too. But, um, but you know, and the, the only way I can really justify uh, the, um, the way women are treated in this movie is that... Um, that that misogynist aspect is kind of earlier on in the film, and um, yeah. really, I mean the the initial. I mean it's in it's in the words from his father to him. But you know, but I mean the initial the initial part of the film is really about him um, becoming a slave and then yeah. uh, becoming a gladiator and then becoming a warrior. Uh, right. And um, and maybe it's part of his his character development because he doesn't really seem to say those same things uh later right. on but that's a bit of a stretch let's just leave it with um you know it's a it's a very it's a very confusing <laughs> and misogynistic message it is and uh you know on one hand i can kind of understand what they're going for this is conan the barbarian you know like and um you can just tell with the whole intro with the father speech they are basically stating this is a men's movie. Like, this is a movie made by men <laughs> for men. Not just like, and I don't mean just all men, I mean men with a capital M. Yes. And, you know, it's starring Arnold Schwarzenegger for God's sakes. You know, and it's written by the writer of, like, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> this is serious shit. And, uh, that misogyny, I mean, um, they could have done with a little, you know, a little. It could have been a little less rapey. Let's yeah, put, well, let's you know put what? It that way. It's, I mean, you know, you look at like Mad Max Fury Road, which is a similar type of deal, sort of going, but much more female friendly, infinitely yeah. more female friendly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's also just part of the times, but for sure. But I mean, you know, and in all of the Conan literature, I mean, women always play, um, you know, an important role. To Conan's character, really. yeah. Are, are there any strong female characters in the in the novels you've read or anything? Yeah, I mean, he sometimes has uh, companions who uh, they're not they're not all novels. I mean, Howard's are all short stories, right? Right. Um, but I mean, he, he sometimes has companions who are uh, women similar similar to Valeria. But for the most part, it's um, you know uh, bar wenches, uh, right. priestesses. Um, and just generally a buxom array of uh, foils and damsels in distresses, right. damsels in distress, rather. Um, you know, Conan is not something that women should read to feel particularly empowered. No, and I mean, even when they tried a little bit with uh, the the new Conan, with the Rachel Nichols character, mm -hmm. 
they still ultimately turn her into a damsel in distress tied to like a rock or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, I don't know what's preferable. Well, well I, I mean, mean, just think of the um, some of the really iconic um, drawings and paintings of Conan from yeah. the pulp covers. Oh, for sure. And they're all they're always you know Conan bathed in blood, standing upon you know a body of corpses with uh, a woman wearing a. A, f- a flimsy right. gown uh, holding on to his calf or something like that, right? Yeah, which sort of takes me back to my earlier comments that this film, you know, like I don't think this is this is one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, mm. but I think it's a good one. I think it's a really good one. Um, but it is a complete, pure expression of what they wanted. Uh, and, I, you know, I mean... I guess props to them. You know, they made perhaps the ultimate Conan movie. And I do question whether you could ever make another Conan movie that um, met sort of this sort of mark. I think you would have to reimagine a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, just, I mean, I imagine that if you released this movie today, it wouldn't would be... be too popular. No, I, I don't imagine so. I love it. I think it's... Je- Jezebel would rightly be uh, putting up a lot of articles about it. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think it's... I actually think it's an it's an incredible film. I like yeah. it. I like it despite... Um, you know, sometimes, like, the some of the great movies have incredibly negative messages. And I don't think that's necessarily means the movie should just be discarded. I think often that makes them more fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, I just... I actually just think... Um, I think that, I just think the film itself, and and even those those lines. I mean, um, in a, in a weird kind of way, I don't consider myself to be a, a misogynist in any way. But right. um, I think it it it's those things are part of the movie, and it kind of yeah. gives the movie its character. And it is yeah. um, a movie that's really made at a certain time in right. in history by. John Milius. Yeah, I think that makes it just really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So let's get into like sort of the themes of the movie a bit because, as we know, John Milius, real right wing guy. What are the messages of this movie? Um, uh, I mean, there seems to be like a real like kind of like might makes right sort of message, like the strongest man shall rule them all. Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I it's think sort of that wasn't the the Simpsons line: the uh, Nazi supermen are our superiors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that um I mean really the the only real theme of the movie is the Nietzsche quote at the start. Right. Right? You know, uh whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Basically, um that you know, a sufficiently physically strong man uh with a sufficient exertion of will can do anything. Now, do you think that the film thinks that Conan is something to be, uh, like, for us to strive towards being like Conan? Or do you think it's presenting him as a tragic character? Because, I mean, he's a pretty tragic character. Um, I don't know. I don't think the film is really thinking that much about, yeah, about that kind of thing. It's something I, I kind of went back and forth on watching the movie. Because, you know, <laughs> to look at this character's backstory, it's horrific. I mean, as grim as pretty much any character ever put to film. Um, but the film doesn't seem to be weeping for him. It seems to be kind of holding him up as, a, as, as the hero we need sort of thing. No, in fact, there's that whole scene where uh, his buddy Sumitai says, you know, he's a Sumerian. Yeah. He, he won't cry, so I'll cry for him. Right. Um, 
I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put too much stock in uh, Shakespearean themes here. I think um, most of the movie is a vehicle to. You know, what about, what about Taming of the Shrew? Maybe a little Taming of the Shrew in there? No. Who's the Shrew? <laughs> I think that uh, really, um, you know, when Conan's hacking the head off of a, a giant snake, right? Uh, you know, really it's just a vehicle to hack the head off a snake. Right. And we should get then get into, speaking of hacking, let's get into some of the action. Um, you know, Fury Road, that mm-hmm. is a movie that's shot as classical action, uh, character through action, which is like the fundamentals of cinema. And in many ways, this film follows a similar line. I could see watching this movie as a silent movie. Um, maybe. I think it would work better with the score. And well, you uh, keep the score. Oh, okay. silent films have scores, right? And I actually, I, I mean, the dialogue, I think, in this movie is awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. But there's not a lot of it. Like, it does play like a silent film a lot of the time. Sure. Um, I don't know. I haven't watched that many silent films. Right. Just because, you know, frankly, I like people talking. This is, <laughs> you know, this, this is like what I said last time, where if it was up to you, the horse and buggy would be rated Motor Trend's uh, number one car of all time. <laughs> Did I say that? Um, <laughs> we would, uh, in relation to movies. But... I mean the action. I mean the action itself in this movie. Yeah. Is, and actually that was the one thing I was worried about before we watched this film. And I don't know about you, is um, a lot of action from the '80s kind of sucks. Uh, Does it? I mean I don't know. I feel like most movies uh, nowadays the action sucks. Well, the sword sword fighting choreography and that. Yeah. Kind of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I thought, uh, you know, I kind of vaguely remembered, uh, even though I'd seen this movie actually relatively recently. A lot of sword fights where it was clear that um, some choreographer was saying, okay, high, low, high, right. mid, somersault. Right. Uh, and in this one, uh, I mean, watching it, I, I thought the action was great. It was so bloody. It yeah, was, it was really messy, it which was, I loved. Like, just like squibs everywhere, blood all over the place. Yeah, it was so bloody. It was so violent. Um, the, and one thing I really noticed... And I don't know if you did as well. The um, the the lack of computer graphics made yeah. the movie made the action so much more gripping. Yeah, like lots of you know practical and um, mechanical effects and stuff like that. You know, they just had to do their squibs and their you know animatronic snakes and so forth. I mean, there was the one scene where uh, Conan had been crucified. Right. And um, great scene. Yeah, uh, and then he, he they another iconic scene actually that I want to make that my third one. Yeah, you're... biting the uh, the bird to death. That's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, but the where Conan's been crucified, he's been hauled down, and uh, and you know the spirits are coming to try and take him away. The yeah. the animated spirits, and I mean they're clearly fake and animated, but it's not as overdone and over. Just as in your face as um, a computer-generated scene right. would be today. If it was today, there'd just be shit flying everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it would sp- look like the climax from Thor: The Dark World. Yeah, so, I mean, sp- the spirits would be flying in the air, and they'd open their mouths, and you'd see other worlds within them. Yeah. And here, it was just um, a very physical kind of scene, which was awesome. No, I agree. That scene was really cool. 
it was sort of that great sort of scary ghost sort of thing you would see in like the original Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. where it just has so much more impact than what you would see now. Mm-hmm. And and that is a great scene because it is so friggin' weird. Like, I, I was watching that scene like, what the hell am I watching? And I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, Conan's like wrapped up like a baby. He's got writing all over his face. This is crazy town. <laughs> but it, it's it's just, it, it all works. Like, this is a movie where like almost every single artistic individual decision shouldn't have worked. <laughs> like, should have been laughed off the screen. Works. And, you know, you get to those big action sequences and you got... You know, um, the guy swinging the big hammer. Which actually brings me to um, uh, a little number that I, I'd like to incorporate into a few of our shows, I hope, going forward, which is, which is uh, uh, Spots Fen. Um, maybe in the future we'll have some kind of interlude, musical interlude to that. But uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, one of Arnold's most frequent collaborators is Sven Ole Thornson, who's one of Arnold's old bodybuilding bunnies from back on the continent. And, <laughs> and uh, he's been in more, uh, more films with Arnold Schwarzenegger than any other actor. And, uh, starting, this is starting with this one. And Ar- Arnold, um, got him the, I think got him the job here. And he played the, the hammer wielding guy right. in, in, uh, in Conan, the guy who looked like the bassist from Iron Maiden. Right. You know, he... Uh, he looked like the bassist in every heavy metal band of the 80s. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who are going to be following along and watching Arnold movies as you go, uh, a little a little fun game to play as you go through. Normally he's just a bit player or even in the background or something like that, but he's in almost every single movie. So uh, if you can spot Sven, you win a prize. Tony will uh, let you know what that prize is when you contact him and uh, and send your address. That's correct. <laughs> and a self self addressed stamped envelope <laughs> with fifty dollars in it <laughs> for postage. Yeah, postage. Postage Ship, is really expensive. Sh- shipping and handling. Canada, you know, you yeah. know how it is. Um, just, I never told you this, but I actually had a fun Conan experience as a child. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a theme of our show too, where um, you say you're going to tell a story about your childhood and then laugh maniacally, right? As I envision um, all sorts of horrors. Yeah. Uh, no, no, this is cool. Uh, when uh, when I was young, we went to uh, Universal Studios back in around oh, maybe 1988. Okay. And I got to see the Conan live action show. Really? Yes. At that point, they still had a Conan one. They had a Star Trek one. And I don't remember what the stunt one was. I think it was just like wild. They had the Wild West one. They had one with water. I don't. It was the Miami Vice. And your parents took you to see Conan. Yes, I saw. I saw the Conan live action show. Phantom was sold out. (laughs) No, it's at Universal Studios. It's one Uh, of the attractions, and you get to sit in. And I got to watch Conan battle like a giant snake. Really? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't much of a battle. He kind of just leaned over and stuck a sword in its neck and it withered up and shrank into the floor. <laughs> but, you know, it's just one of those memories I have of that trip. Like, it was just very memorable and I was very excited to see it because I wanted to see that giant snake, li- you know, live. Was it a musical? No, unfortunately. <laughs> there was no, uh, no no cast of uh, of dozens of people, the chorus? No, no jazz hands. <laughs> no. 
No, it was the second best live show I saw, other than the Miami Vice stunt show, which was incredible. <laughs> Good to know. But it was, I, it was better than the other ones. I can't believe you remember, because you must have been, what, eight? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I can't remember anything. Until really? I, yeah, until I was until about last year. Hmm. Well? I, I blame what I did mostly in my 20s. <laughs> Hugs, not drugs. That's right. <laughs> so, one thing I want to talk about with Conan is this movie... You know, we talked about the dialogue. This movie is like tough guy poetry. Every bit of, like, dialogue in this movie is just like, yes. I remember you once referred to, like, um, the Michael Madsen character in Kill Bill Volume 1 as, like, a like cowboy philosopher. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the same thing, but it's, like, manly man philosopher. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, if, if uh, you know... Frederick Nietzsche were uh, interpreted with a broadsword in hand. Yeah. And, and then written in blood and, you know, with most of the subtleties kind of hacked away from it, I, I think you'd probably end up with something like this. And Milius was also really inspired by Japanese um, militarism. So that was a big point of uh, influence, too. Mm. Should probably explain why. Uh, I thought it was the, the Conan origin where Conan's trained by samurai. Uh, that was a nice touch. Well, he was a big Seven Samurai fan. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Well, did you have any final thoughts as we begin to wrap up here? I had one. Well, that giant snake was amazing. Um, and even better was Tulsa Doom as a snake man. The uh, The effects were done, uh, were overseen by Nick Alder, who, uh, who also won an Oscar a couple years earlier for his work on Alien. Well, I was going to ask you, um, did you have a favorite scene in the film? Snake, Tulsa Doom. That was your favorite? That is up there. I mean, honestly, I love the big moments, you know, the the wheel, the tree of woe. And honestly, I mean, him hacking Tulsa Doom to death up on that altar was incredible. Mm-hmm. Those were, I think, I mean, I like the big moments. Yeah, I, I really like the scene where... Uh, They've they've invaded the the temple and there's that orgy. The orgy, yeah. You know and, what? That's a great one. And just and um, that makeup is fantastic that they're all wearing. Yeah, and just Conan. Basically, I mean, it, it was a very uh, iconic and classic Conan shot of Conan. You know, basically wading through um, piles of scantily clad women, right. hacking guards uh, left and right. right. And Arnold's, you know, I mean. I mean, dialogue, we, the, we've already talked about the dialogue, but he's a pretty menacing guy in this film. Yeah. Uh, he's got that, he's really got that Arnold sneer going, going really yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, he's working it. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that sequence, actually. That is a fantastic one. Mm-hmm. And just like the look, the visual look is fantastic. Um, one thing, though, I, I found the movie dragged a bit leading up to that sequence. Like, it kind of gets bogged down a little bit, I felt like. In just the, you know, the resurrection, the resurrection scene is interesting, but sort of the things surrounding the resurrection sequence. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, they, they could have, I guess they could have cut a little bit out of it, but I mean, what's the running time on this movie? It's like it's, 90 minutes. It's 126 minutes. Is that long? Yeah. Oh, it flies by. Yeah, it's just over two hours. Hmm. I feel like it could be cut down a little bit. A little bit, but. I wouldn't lose anything important. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, some of the, maybe the landscape shots. Some of this, maybe some of the, uh, the stuff with, uh, what's his name, Max von Sydow, that whole... Yeah, he was barely in it. Yeah, I mean, you know... They, he was like channeling Nick Nolte. 
the, you know, they set up the whole, you know, rescue my daughter, gems aren't worth anything to me kind of yeah. subplot. Because, I mean, that part's pretty drawn out given that they, I mean, really, it's not really what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. But um, but for the most part, everything that's in there, it, was, it didn't drag too much at any point. Right. Now, did you feel that scene, like, paid off really at all? The, all the stuff with the daughter? I, I kind of agree with you. It doesn't really contribute a lot. I guess it's a, a, a motivation to get them into the temple. Mm-hmm. But it, it would have been nice if it had been maybe built up a little more. In some way. I'm, I'm not sure how. Because I don't think we need more Max von Sydow, But Yeah, I mean, really they could have... Um... I mean, they could have really just gotten them there by saying there's a bunch of bunch more jewels in the tower. Mm-hmm. That seems like that would have got them there without the the daughter plot. Fortune and glory. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a fun watch. If, if if anyone out there by any chance, I mean, this movie's been around for a while, and if you haven't taken our advice, and um, I don't know if we open this movie up by saying there may be spoilers inside, but if you. Uh, haven't taken our advice and watched these movies before you listen to our podcast, uh, go out and rent it. It's definitely a movie that's worth watching, uh, whether you're a huge Arnold fan or a huge Conan fan or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I really I really recommend it. It's a great film. I think it's a really good movie. Um, I think it's very interesting. And it, we'll talk about a lot of movies uh, on this podcast that aren't as interesting on a subtextual level or textual level for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there'll be lots of just kind of flashbang action films, which may be a lot of fun, but there's not as, as much substance to kind of chew on as this movie. I think, uh, you know, probably even the sequel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. This movie offers a lot to kind of mull over and just kind of go through. And I just think it's a really interesting film. There's a lot of beauty to it. I mean, it grabs you right with the opening credit shot, which is like one of the great 80s uh, opening credit sequences. So great. So let's leave it there. You know, we've, um, I think we've explored about as much as Conan as you can uh, do in an hour or so. And you know we'll talk more probably about this movie when we talk about Destroyer and the 2011 or 12 movie. And if there's anything that we didn't touch on or that we've missed, we encourage you to to let us know uh, if you can't believe that we didn't talk more about Conan pushing over a cauldron full of hands or <laughs> or something like that. Um, shoot us an email, drop us a line. If you want us to talk more about some other stuff in our next episode, uh, please do the same. Uh, if you could leave us a rating, it really helps us out in, as terms of, in terms of getting our um, podcast listened to, which is what we would like. We hope that everybody out there has enjoyed or at least tolerated are uh, talking about Arnold and talking about Conan. Right, and yeah, send us any emails you got at arniegeddonpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at arniegeddonpod. And uh, you can find me online at camvsmith.com or at the my Star Trek podcast, uh, which Tony occasionally appears on, uh, subspace transmissions at subspacepod.com. Yeah, and I'm still in the process. I'm... Uh, I, you know, I, I declared myself as technical editor of the of the uh, 
blog and unfortunately Cameron has had to take over most of that as <laughs> I've uh, <laughs> done other things but I'm, I'm still setting up the uh, website and the email address uh, but we'll have that up soon and uh, at that point you'll be able to reach me Tony G uh, at that address okay so join us next time when uh, we will be tackling James Cameron's 1994 smash hit True Lies I can't wait. Uh, it's a great film, and we hope you'll join us. Charles Neston and I, Patch Man. And Tia Carrera. Yes, that's right. So, we'll be back. Bye.